based on how you self-identify, have you faced any difficulty or discrimination within the work context? Are you kidding me? We're black. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Every single day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I just went through a negotiation process for a job that was really interesting and kind of challenging because I felt like me advocating for my rights, my wage, like a decent living and, and being valued was seen as like pushing in a kind of way. I feel like just because of my positionality, people read me and my needs a little differently. And I was like told that the job was almost like a favor to me, but it's not a favor, it's a job. And to categorize it that way is like really messed up. Being chronically ill means you can't participate in networking environments that involve a lot of energy and full health. Otherwise, I have to say that being a white presenting younger female has probably opened a lot of doors and I don't want to discount the power of being able to walk into rooms and also be invisible in rooms. That can be powerful access when you're making media. <sighs> Mine is going to be short and sweet. As a black woman working in the tech field and fashion and just like graphic design in general, yes, <laughs> I have experienced discrimination. No. Well, I'm, I guess, white, straight, male person. <laughs> I guess that's what you would expect, right? But that's the answer. <laughs> Equality. This is the conversation we're having during Women's History Month. But to give this topic justice, we need to also consider what part equity plays. Equity is the varying levels of support needed to obtain true equality for people from different backgrounds. Welcome to the second part of our two-part series in honor of Women's History Month. Hi, I'm Darby Masters, and you're listening to the I Make a Living podcast. How do you self-identify? Um, I self-identify as a biracial woman. Uh, I'm both Asian and white. Um, I self-identify as Latinx. I'm non-binary and Puerto Rican. Black, cisgender, female. Oh, um, I would self-identify... I mean, I could go on forever, but like, depending on how many identities I want to name. Uh, black, queer, femme, young, first-generation immigrant uh, from a low-income background who has subclass status because she has a degree living in New York City, English speaker. I now have citizenship, American citizenship. Yeah, I have a lot of different intersecting identities. Based on how you self-identify, the amount of equity needed to accomplish equality may vary. In our last episode, we covered a pretty broad view of what it's like to be a woman in the entrepreneurial world. But what we didn't cover is how the experiences can vary from person to person, specifically how your race and gender can influence this experience. One of the best ways to understand what I mean by this is intersectionality. The term intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. Crenshaw used the term to create a framework for people to understand the complexities of multiple oppressive systems that one person can experience. For instance, a black woman's experience is unique from that of a white woman or a black man. So, to understand this term, it's quite important to recognize the default in our society. 
meaning the highest level of power in America is a cisgendered heterosexual white male. For just one example, over 70% of corporate leadership in Fortune 500 companies are white men. This is quote-unquote normal in our society. So being a man has power and being white has power, but being a white man, that has the most power. Crenshaw's term intersectionality gives us the language to understand how the more intersections that you have, identities that differ from America's default, white, cis, hetero, male, the more difficult your experience might be. In the first episode of this series, we talked about the female experience in the entrepreneurial world in a general sense, which is important, but also usually what's highlighted when women are given a voice. So this episode, let's get more specific. The feminist movement is about fighting the inequalities and inequities people face in society, which means this conversation is not only for women, but also women of color and is inclusive of queer, non-binary, gender fluid, and transgender people. We're talking about marginalized individuals who don't fit the American default. What's been their experience in the small business world? I know my experience as a cisgendered white woman, and actually, most of society does. Because when we talk about gender inequality, these are the first stories that we hear. So the narrative looks quite different when we're talking about the entrepreneurial journey of a black woman or transgender woman. Okay. Sorry, I'm going to get one cough in. Okay, go go for it. I'm going to have a cold. Yes. Is there a technique to, like, clear your voice without... I know. Are you going to edit it, right? Yeah, I'm going to edit it. That's me in the recording studio with Kwebe Koti and Laura Laban. They're both successful business owners, but their experiences are not only different from mine, but also quite different from one another. So without further intro, here's the interview. Let's see. I have these flashcards. So I'm going to just go ahead and start with, can you tell me who you are and what you do? So let's start with Laura. Okay, so my name is Laura Laban. I am um, CEO and co-founder of a company called Infinite Flight. We make a, uh, a flight simulator for mobile phones, so tablets and phones on iOS and Android. Yeah, so we have about a dozen people around the world. Everybody's remote. There's no two people in the same location. And um, I'd say my daily duties on the simulator are like mostly flight physics. So I work um, on making the planes fly and tuning all the flight dynamics and seeing what works and what doesn't work. So, yeah, absolutely. That's what I do. Perfect. Thank you. Quebec? Um, I am, should I say my name? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That'd be great. My name is Quebec Coti, and I am a uh, founder of the Bushwick Film Festival, which is a independent film festival in Brooklyn, New York. We are in our 12th year, and basically what we do is produce events, specifically a yearly film festival for the community of North Brooklyn. And I guess I mean, every year we have about 3,000, 3,500 people come over for the weekend to enjoy independent films from all over the world. Our films come from about 30 to 40 different countries. We have about 100 filmmakers that also attend and engage in it with our audience about all things film. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been an exciting journey. I founded it in 2007 when I first moved to Bushwick. I have a, a, I guess, a media and communication background. And I've also always been fascinated by the power of the arts to bring people together from all different backgrounds. Fascinating. Okay. How do you self-identify? A black female. For me, a white trans woman. Okay. As an entrepreneur, I am most proud of dot, dot, dot. As an entrepreneur, I am most proud of 
I want to say my resilience. Do you mean like a personal characteristic or just something else? However you However want to interpret it. Yeah, I think I would say I'm most proud of my resilience because I think with entrepreneurship, your ability to get back up quickly is, I think, one thing that keeps your company going or it helps you sort of break through to the other side. And I, I realize that, you know, that that's something that I do pretty well. So, and have you done that with experience? Is I'm like gone through that, so you know that. Oh you do God, that? yeah, <laughs> <laughs> almost all the time. Okay. Um. So, and I think I've learned that just from my life experiences. You know, just growing up in a family that had to go through a lot of adversity and had to sort of continuously push through things, and I found that that specific characteristic is works really well for entrepreneurs. Do you mind expressing what this adversity is that you're talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Well, I came from West Africa, and we came to the States as immigrants because of a civil war. So that was like a huge thing to sort of, you know, for my parents at my age, actually, to get uprooted and sort of just had to say goodbye to their country and with all the fear and, you know, that goes along with the war and then relocate to America without any papers or any way to really make a living for themselves and their four children. So there was a lot of overcoming growing up. And obviously as children, you don't really realize that much, but you are affected, I feel, by like stress and energy that is in your house or whatever. So yeah, there was that a lot of money, not a lot of access to education, not a lot of a lot of things. So, you know, we just sort of learned how to do with what we had and you know, just work hard to try to get more. You know, I went to public school. The public school was hard and dangerous. And, you know, our neighborhood was dangerous. You know, we would get robbed. You know, it was just like a lot of things. And then just having to always, you know, go to school, do well, try to get scholarships to sort of get out of that situation. Um, So that sort of being able to spend so many years having the opportunity (laughs) to spend so many years in struggle. When I started my business, I think a lot of people that haven't gone, well, this is my opinion, obviously, but I feel like a lot of people that haven't gone to a lot of struggle, once they hit a roadblock with their business, it's easier to give up as opposed to pushing forward. So that's something that I I realize has been really helpful in my career. Yeah, absolutely. Laura? On my end, like like kind of bouncing off the resilience part, my upbringing was not as hard as yours. Um, I don't think that's what pushed me. I would say, like, I sometimes get like, oh, you're you're the entrepreneurs, like, keep going. It's like for me, it wasn't really like a conscious effort of trying, like, keep going. Like, the simulator is always like on my mind, and and it's not an effort. Like, it's it just comes naturally because it's something. It's my hobby and it's my job. So I, you know, working on weekends on fun project is not actually work. It's just a hobby that people pay me to do. <laughs> um, yeah. Absolutely. All right, next question. As a woman, do you hold back your opinion or knowledge on any topic so you are not offensive or rejected? Do you mean just in certain areas or situations? It could be within work context. It could be social situations. I think, yes, it depends. For me, you know, outside of the Bushwick Film Festival, I also have another company that I do consulting with. And a lot of the organizations that I consult with are owned by, you know, super wealthy white men. And I found myself 
when I, you know, go into meetings with them and their partners, like I find myself like retreating a little bit and, and also not even being actually directly talked to or they, you know, people just assume that I'm not like the business owner or the consultant there to sort of help out or whatever. And I think it's an interesting dynamic, you know, depending on who's in the room, how I'm impacted and how that's something that I actually would love, like that I'm actively working at. There's been a few meetings where I literally did not say a word or wasn't even directly asked the question. So, yeah, I mean, I do feel like depending on the room that I'm in, I do feel intimidated sometimes to speak up. Oh, interesting. Laura? I guess there were some situations where I was forced to get out of the room because nobody was kind of listening to me. And there was a, a, an experience that I wrote about some time ago about a an air show that we went to with um, our digital marketing person at the company. It was the first time he was accompanying me there. And uh, we had a little booth set up. And then some some guy came over. He was in the military for some like flight or training or something. And he was trying the app. And I was talking to some other people. And then uh, he started asking questions to Jason about the flight model and you know technical aspects of the simulator, which Jason, it's not his forte. He can do like great you know advertisement you know stuff like that. But the simulator is our part. So Jason told him like you you gotta ask the questions to Laura, and. Um, so he asked me the question, and then I answered. He was not looking at me. Mm. And then he turned around and asked more questions to Jason. Oh, interesting. And mm. Jason kept forwarding it back to me, like, hey, you know, Laura's here. Like, she works on the flight model. You want to talk to her, not to me, like, again. And he kept doing that for, like, two, three questions. Wow. And eventually I just, like, I was like, all right, I'm going to make you a sandwich or something. I don't know. <laughs> and I just left. What do you want? I just, yeah. I just left. And we had, you know... Uh, it, and this never happened to me before. So, uh, mm. like, never. Yes, of course. I would, I would have been asked the questions. And it's not even their fault because, like, it's a society is this way, right? Sure. So, I mean, I was I grew up this way. Like, I grew up thinking that's, like, you know, women are an inferior. It's probably the reason why I transitioned at 35 and not, you know, 10. Yeah. Because it's, like, still today, it's a downgrade. Mm-hmm. What I did is a downgrade mm-hmm. to, like, blonde, white, male, tall CEO to, like, super low. Mm-hmm. So, so then, how did you get to that point where you're like, nope, this is exactly who I am, and I know it? What do you mean? So when you transitioned at 35, right? So you said that you would have done at 10 if it weren't for society. And if I had known, yeah, if if there was a, like an open discussion about it, like you know, if you look at TV shows that I was watching when I was 10 or 12 or 15, I knew something was up. I knew something was wrong, but I forgot that this movie with Jim Carrey. There's like a detective who's trans and they make fun of her at some point and like they pull her skirt down or something and they're like, oh, she, you know, she's not a she, blah, blah, blah. This is still in my head, mm-hmm. like 30 something years later, it's mm-hmm. still in my head and it, it doesn't make you want to do anything about it. It's only when, when it started to become a more open discussion and more like quote unquote normal, like with big quotes mm-hmm. to my world came out and had... You know, did interviews and I was like, oh, wait, there's actually not just the talk show, like trash talk show kind of people. There's also like, you know, people who make satellites, you know, game developers and, you know, CEOs who are transgender and come out. So this is how kind of it unlocked at least my brain to like admit that I, you know, probably was trans. 
Um, but then it's, you know, it's, it's an uphill battle with the rest of the people and your family and then society. And, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I appreciate men that dot, dot, dot. Um, speak up for women in situations where they feel they can't speak up for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say I appreciate men who understand the struggles of others that can empathize with things they've never experienced. I don't know if it's like um, something that's in them or not, but like a lot of men, when they see trans women, there's a lot of rejection. You know, it's like oh, gross. It's like feels like there's un- unresolved issues. So it would be great. Like I, pref- I appreciate men who can just look into themselves and figure out why that makes them so comfortable mm. and and just be okay with it. Okay, this one I might have to give a bit of a caveat because I wrote this down and I was like, does this express exactly what I'm trying to say? This one is, how I look has nothing to do with what I am doing. So I have noticed that... For myself, I really struggle with doing something that I'm quite proud of and being professional in whatever space that I'm in. And then people don't look at that. They look at what I look like. And so I present something that is quite professional and very good and in my craft. And yet the comments that I get is, wow, you just, your outfit is on point today. Or you just have the greatest smile when I just presented something that has nothing to do with how I look. And I feel like it lessens the amount of brilliance it took to do that thing. Yeah, okay. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) Can you read it one more time? Yes. How I look has nothing to do with what I am doing. I don't know. It feels like, I guess, how... I kind of feel like how I look sort of does a little bit. Okay, yeah. Tell are, me is that. in line with, only because I'm very, I talk a lot about the struggles of being like a woman of color trying to run a business. Yes, of course. Um, and also, I, I want to I would want to say that, yes, how I look does have nothing to do with what I'm doing, but it does influence how other people react to me. And that's that's a little harder to get around. You know, like in my mind, I could be like, doesn't matter, but then how people are responding to me in real time, in real life, it does, you know? I, I'll give an example. I went to boarding school, right, when I was in high school. It was like a really super preppy, like, beautiful boarding school, super expensive. <laughs> and I was, there were like 10 Black students out of like 450 students, and in my class there was two. And I just remember in class, I don't know, there was like this race issue that came up on campus and I was like deathly afraid of being asked any questions about it. So I was in class and I don't even know if this actually connects, but I was in class and they were asking students how they felt. And I literally was like, oh my God, please do not ask me. Like, this is too much for me to handle. And I didn't raise my hand and I like, I like did not like volunteer (laughs) to be the voice for all black people in the, you know, in this situation. Right. Of course. But I was forced to do that. Like Mm. the, like the teacher was literally like, so Quebe, (laughs) what are you, what's your opinion? And like the entire class was just like, and I just remember, like, I literally just started crying. Like, it's just like, (gasps) and I just like, and I can't say anything. But the thing is like, just like how I look, like I'm sort of forced to be in society to be that 
person that's an advocate for women of color, or advocate for immigrants, or advocate for, you know, like underserved communities. And at first, I was always like, it was hard for me. Like, I was always struggling with that position that I was put in. I didn't really want, I didn't put myself in that position. I was just like, this is it. This is, this is a position <laughs> this is how that I am. I yeah. was being put. So then I eventually embraced it and was like, okay, so, you know, there aren't that many women of color that had like, you know, a lot of great opportunities that sort of overcome blah, blah, blah. So I guess I'll just embrace it now. Um, and I started sort of going in that direction. But I guess, you know, if that makes sense, at first I didn't feel like I wanted to be that person that everyone saw, you know? Like, I didn't want to be the Black person that spoke up for all Black people, you know? Yes, of course. And it was, and that's, I don't know, that's a constant sort of battle. And sometimes I do choose not to say anything, and I guess that really does go in hand with what you're saying. How I look it has nothing to do with what I'm doing. And, you know, in a perfect world, I really wish I could just not think of, you know, like, I just really wish I could make a film that has to do with just regular feelings and like, and, you know, just living in the world as a human being and not really sometimes think about like what living in the world as a black woman is like. Um, I don't know. So I sort of struggle with, with both sides. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up actually, because I wrote these questions. I mean, I wrote them with my co-producer, but I'm a white woman. So like easy for me to write this down and then not have any backstory to this. Whereas like I can say this and then you guys can have all of this backstory and you're like, okay, yeah, good concept. But like in practice, does that actually happen? Like, and is that, is that a, a fair assumption of how actually it is in society? Because you're right, it's not. It's a little also more intensive with travel. Yeah, I think airports is such, it's that space is such an interesting behavioral or dynamics when it comes to cultures and people. Because, yeah, when I'm moving through the world, I just have a different feeling. And I kind of feel like I have to be the ambassador of Black people, <laughs> you know? So I'm like, okay, I have to dress nice in the airplane. And like, you know, because sometimes some people maybe never saw a Black woman, you yeah, know? And, sure. And, or they have an idea of a Black woman that's like super loud and obnoxious in public spaces. So I'm like, you know, trying to be like all ambassador-like when I'm when I'm traveling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And do you ever feel like you, I mean, I'm sure you feel like you don't want to have to break that stereotype. Do you ever feel the freedom not to have to do that? Uh, yeah. Well, n- uh, not that much. <laughs> no. <laughs> was shaking her head too. Okay. Oh, interesting. Okay, share. <laughs> the reason why I was shaking my head is like it's, it feels like a constant thing. Whenever, you know, our kids go to school and we meet, parents but the kids are asking questions like so who's the other woman is it did you have two mommies or like Mm -hmm. and it's always the kids is easy to explain but the parents you know it's always uncomfortable it feels like we have to have a disclaimer in front of like every interaction we have with people Mm. and we have people come over it's like oh by the way you know Mm. and my wife is like my husband transition Mm -hmm. And, and it's like sometimes like how much do they know about this issue? Mm-hmm. If they know nothing, it's like, all right, I'm going to have to do this speech again about you know, all this and dysphoria and blah, blah, blah. And sometimes I don't want to do it. I want to do something else. I, I want to talk about other things and not that. So, yeah. That's exhausting. It, it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's exhausting. Like, there's some days I'm just like, you know, we're not going to go to an event just because it's like, oh, 
people are going to look at us and it's like, oh, I don't want to explain it again. I, I don't want to explain it again. It's exhausting. Yeah. And, and you see the looks on people. Yeah. Um, so that's just, yeah. Quaver, mm. do you have any other thoughts? I, I agree. I mean, okay. yeah, I mean, obviously, I think that being a black woman is, I don't have the same looks, obviously, you know, that, that you're experiencing. But just having this to be, I guess I'll circle back to the ambassador thing, is just exhausting. <laughs> I know, I feel like that's why healing is a whole different thing. But like spending time, like taking care of yourself and self-care is very important when you have such a huge responsibility on a daily basis. For the Black women community, we talk a lot about trauma and like physical and like emotional trauma just absolutely for, for things like that. But yeah, I mean, I think exhausting is the right word for it um, all around. The one thing I think men need to start or stop doing today is dot, dot, dot. Mansplaining. <laughs> okay. okay, can you explain what mansplaining is? <laughs> well, I mean, first assuming that you don't know what you're talking about and then taking the responsibility of clarifying ideas and thoughts and theories for you. I think also uh, a part of mansplaining has to do with being unaware of like different perspectives or something. But I'll leave it there if you want to. <laughs> well, wait, hold, hold on. Tell me, have you have had any experiences of mansplaining? I feel like a lot of times when I'm on panels, if I'm the only woman, like I don't talk that much or I don't get, there's no space enough for me to like talk about what I know. Mm. I'm trying to think of like a specific moment of mansplaining that I've encountered. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it yes, and, and come but back to as, you. As you think about it, I do actually have another follow-up question, yeah. <laughs> which is you just mentioned there's no space for you to speak within a panel. Yeah. What would make that space available? So like there can potentially be silences where you can insert yourself. Yeah. But is there something else that can happen to make that space feel safe and comfortable for you to share? I got okay, it. Okay, click. I have yes. a, um, an example. <laughs> okay. I was in the room once, okay. uh, and this was my consulting business. And actually, but it was another, it was, a, it was a black man that sort of helped me out. So we were in the room, and it was like a long table, and it was like maybe 10 dudes, and it was just me, and then like there was this other black guy. And he was the person that like had the final decision of a deal or something. And I was supposed to be the consultant, so, but like nobody was letting me talk, so I was just sitting there like feeling very uncomfortable. I kind of felt like somebody's like secretary in the right, room, sure. so I was just like, all right, I guess I'll take some notes. Oh, you know? oh no. And then like, so I was like, I'm taking notes, like mm-hmm. trying to be like not uncomfortable. And then he specifically was like, Quebe, I'm interested in knowing what you think about this. And then everybody in the room, like he sort of transitioned, he established like, like, I see this woman, I know she's amazing, I know that she has power. And I know that she's not given an opportunity to speak right now. So I'm going to, like, make space for her in this room. And that felt so good. Like, mm. it really felt really good when that happened. So that's an example that, like, I would, was not able to do that for myself. And I felt really uncomfortable and, like, kind of shitty. And just for someone else to clearly make space for me to sort of, like, shine, you know, it was really cool. Mm. Thank you for sharing. Laura? I would like to bounce off the mansplaining thing mm-hmm. because as someone who's been on both sides, I mm-hmm. think there's a, a good insight because you can tell if things were happening before and they're happening now. I've tried to sp- not be too vocal on Twitter about things that could be mansplained. Like I'm not going to ask questions. I'm not going to be too like sassy about tech topics because I know this brings 
the mansplaining you know, people up. But there was one time, one thing that I was working on, uh, something called a notum, notice to airmen. And uh, when I was coding that, I, I typed notice to airmen. And I was like, what? This is not very like progressive. So I just went to Twitter. This was a stupid thing. And I said, you know, just uh, on to me, like the notums is notice to airmen. If one day we need to work on this, maybe renaming it to to pilots, to air crews or something that's more gender inclusive. And that's it, you know. And so <laughs> some guy on my feed responded like, you know, actually the reason why it's called airmen is because in the 1950s, blah, blah, blah. Oh, this oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> That is a good example. Yeah, so I read his example. thing and I was like, don't you think I know that? Like, it just, yeah, I know. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that if one day we have to like rework that term, maybe a little more inclusive would be great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this question is I wish a white cisgendered woman knew this. Since there's the cisses in there, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. that trans women are not a threat uh-huh. and that we're terrified to go to the woman's bathroom. <laughs> yeah, it's it's terror. <laughs> so we're not out there to do anything other than like the business uh-huh. and we don't want to talk to anyone. Uh-huh. So, yeah. I guess, I mean, I guess if someone would experience what the discrimination felt like, Okay, I'll just give some examples. I'll give a, a public example. Okay, yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> I think last year, the year before last, at the Oscars, and this still bothers me a little bit, you know, like just the Time's Up Woman movement and all that stuff. And right. like, it feels like there is a success. It's successful. Women made it, you know, but then you see a photo and it's like literally all white women and you're just mm-hmm. like, <sighs> you're just like, it's just sort of hurtful in a way where you're like, well, no, we didn't make it. <laughs> you know, like we're still, there are other women that, you know, still need to get there. So maybe just more awareness of where other women are at different levels of the struggle, you know, like we're all in the struggle together. Yes, we agree. But then there's just being having more awareness of the struggle. I was in my women's group the other day and it's like a women's group for people in the film industry. And we were, or they were talking, I actually didn't say that much, but uh, they were talking about how it's so hard now to watch films from the 50s or or 40s or 60s because you know, women don't say anything on screen and like all this stuff. And I literally, I had an out-of-body experience. I was just like, I was like, word. (laughs) I was like, now you feel it's hard to watch films from the 50s? Like in 2008, 19 now, like you're just feeling it hard. And when I watch films from the 50s, all I can think about is like, first, there's no black characters, but this is the moment where people were slaves. <laughs> or not the 60s, but, you know, before. Mm-hmm. Well, it's still the 60s, yeah, but... Yeah, And, like, every time I watch a film from the 20s, like, I always think, like, what were black people doing around this time in America? Like, we were, mm-hmm. you know... And I was just like, that's very interesting. Like, mm-hmm. I never thought that, like, now people are... With all the directors that are now being exposed for right. what they're doing, I just never thought that now is the first moment that you felt this way about films from the past, you know? Mm-hmm. So. May I ask why you didn't feel the freedom to say anything? Oh, that's a good question. Um, because it, I kind of felt like exhausted. 
sure. Which <laughs> seems like, yeah. I kind of felt like. The word of our interview. <laughs> like I, starting a fight or something. Yeah, I, yeah. Just, I don't want to fight for, you know, Yeah, it was just like, like, it wasn't worth it at that moment. I was just like, maybe I'll bring it up later. Maybe I won't. But it was more of an information for me. And and it was a whole nother level. I was, it was that. And then I was also like. Why am I the only black person in this group? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I was like, why aren't there more people of color in this group in the first place? So I, it just had me thinking of all different things. Yeah, sometimes it's just better to roll your eyes <laughs> and keep it moving. <laughs> yeah. Okay, also, Quebec, you mentioned that you wish that some of the white cisgendered women, you wish that they might know what it felt like to be discriminated against. Well, you know, I don't, I take that back. Okay. 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 <laughs> I don't think I really wish anybody any terrible things to happen right, right. to them. But um, I guess just, I feel like I wish the whole world would have more empathy. Yeah, <laughs> you know? sure. And do you feel like you have been discriminated against? <sighs> yes. But just not me as an, like, as an individual. I feel like as a community... I mean, just through policy and access to education and access, like, there's whole laws that, you know, voting rights, just a bunch of historical obstacles or policy that sort of goes against a whole group of people that sort of set me back in a sense. But I do feel as a community, there has been a lot of, uh, what's the word you use? Discrimination? Yeah, discrimination. Mm. Yeah. The undertone of society. Yeah. Yeah feeds into the discrimination yeah. of people. Well, I mean, when I look go into, like, Wisconsin, I get looked at, of course. Yeah, <laughs> or, sure. like, or Texas, you know, like, yeah. just, you know, like, rural parts of America, there's some little, there's something else there, you know? So I had this meeting in a business context with someone that's um, well-known. They were looking for input on something that I'm doing. And um, we did a phone conversation, and then... This was fine. And then we decided to talk a little more over coffee in New York. So I took the train to New York. And on the right there, something hit me. This was like in, you know, in the heat of the Me Too movement that I thought, like, what if this person did something? You know, what if something happened? What would I do? Would I come forward? Probably not. They're super known. Mm-hmm. I'm nobody. Mm-hmm. It was just and badly for me. People would just like, dig up stuff. They would dox me. They, mm. Why would I come forward? Mm. There's no reason. And this was just like for getting information, like just exchanging information. But if it was in the business context and I needed something from this person, mm. what would I do? No idea. Probably wouldn't tell anyone. Mm. Probably would keep it to myself and talk to my therapist about it. Mm. But I would, you know, when you hear about like, oh, why didn't they come forward? Like, nah. Doesn't work like that. Why didn't they fight him off? Like, you know, fighting off is something that's I used to think a lot. There's more considerations that I have now compared to before. Before it was like, eh, what are you gonna do? Just like kick him and, you know, probably have some force to like prevent something. I may get beat up, you know, just beat up and then you can run off. But like sure. Now it's like, it seems like two types of punishment. Like I'm gonna get beat up and then what's gonna happen next, you know, you never know. Mm -hmm. Um and I realized the physical aspect of it, even though it doesn't always come into play with fighting off an offender, I've noticed, you know, like transitioning involves hormone therapy. So when you stop having testosterone in your body, you take estrogen, 
Yeah, you can't open a jar. That's really <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I don't care. It's fine by me. It's always people like doing things for me, but like, <laughs> it's um, mm-hmm. and it's it's something that's different from before because this impression that I could just like just with the basic testosterone levels of a guy. I had way more power and force. Now there's no way I can fight anybody. Mm. That impacts your life quite a bit. Mm. In all types of relationships, when you go to a business meeting, if the person becomes you know, violent for whatever reason, it goes through my mind and it just never did that before. So, yeah. yeah. What are the differences that you're not always aware of when you're a cisgendered male? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, how can people find more about you two? For me, um, it's Instagram and Twitter and see what I post. Yeah. always interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so what are, what's your handle it's, on? Uh, Laura Viatrix. So L-A-U-R-A-V-I-A-T-R-I-X. Yeah. On Instagram and Twitter, it's the same. And then what's the website for your company? So it's called Infinite Flight. So infiniteflight.com. Okay, perfect. Bye-bye. For me also, I mean, my Twitter and Facebook, they're all the same in Instagram. It's at Kweibe, which is K-W-E-I-G-H-B-A-Y-E. And for the festival is BushwickFilmFestival.com. It's really important to have conversations like these in order to understand the variety of experiences people have in the world. I have difficulty in society because I'm a woman, and I really appreciate when others make space for me to express that. In the same way, I can make space for others who have different experiences so they can share their perspective. Difficulties that others face doesn't negate mine. It informs me that there are varying levels of privilege in our world. So not everyone may feel like they can relate to this series, but the reality is it is relevant to all of us. If we really want to build a better world, we need to be aware and informed of the issues that surround us. Discrimination, inequality, and inequity are still well ingrained in our society, and it takes action from all people to fight against these issues. It's important to know what our role is in ensuring that we're building a better world for current and future generations to thrive. Let's keep the conversation about true equality going, even as the month of March comes to an end. We've really enjoyed creating this two-part series for Women's History Month. It was challenging and we learned a lot along the way. Through the research we did, we came across many activists doing some incredible work in advocating for equality. One of them being Stacey Ann Chin, and today we'd like to feature Stacey Ann for Center Stage. She is a Jamaican-born poet, writer, and activist and has been recognized as an influential voice for human rights. She's a recipient of several awards, including but not limited to the 2007 Power of the Voice Awards from the Human Rights Campaign, the 2008 Honors from the Lesbian AIDS Project, the 2008 Safe Haven Award from Immigration Equality, and the 2009 New York State Senate Special Human Rights Award. Also in 2009, she performed her poem, Equality Now, at the National Equality March Rally in D.C., which is a poem we'd like to share with you. So here to introduce Equality Now is Stacey Ann Chin. My name is Stacey Ann Chin. I'm an activist. I'm a writer, a poet, I suppose. I'm an activist. I advocate for change in the world. 
And I think the basis of all change that needs to happen, the basis of all progress that needs to happen rests in the question of equality and more specifically equity. And so equality now is really just a call to action, asking people to, to stand up for, for, for who they are and, and to stand up for, for other people who aren't them. Equality now, equality now, equality now. Equality has to be more than a word. In a country made up of more than one kind of people, it has to be the right of every person breathing. It has to be a given for every household, every arm, every elbow, hand to hand. Those of us with the power to speak must speak must march to recreate the arc of our own history. The future must become a door we all can walk through. So we have to be willing to fight for more than what makes us comfortable. Because what makes us human is the acknowledgement of a universal humanity, gay, Black, Latino, transgender, white, Irish, Chinese, American, Jamaican, bisexual, bicultural, bipartisan, tri-state, red state, blue state. Every right for every resident. Every protection for every union. Homosexual, heterosexual, evangelical. Equality has to be more than a word we apply theoretically. It has to become practice, a way of living, a way of changing the world. Equality has been the catchword of every revolution. Every resolution led by the people in history, be it civil rights or stonewall, the halls of freedom beckon to all who choose to hear, all who choose to bear witness to a reckoning. Things change. Progress. It is the way of humanity, the way of growth. And when it ends, when the iron hand of this era eventually ends, I want to be standing on the right side of progress, the side of truth, the side of compassion and equality. I want to say, yes, I was there, that I was present among the dissenting, standing in the unrelenting turn of a time when every family united by love was covered under the law from the Golden Gate to the Statue of Liberty, from Florida to Niagara. Equality is more than just a word we lend to politicians to garner votes. It has to be more than rote. It has to become breath and repetition. It has to be a right. It has to be the light we all can run to. It has to be what we say, what we believe, what we chant, what we want is equality, is equality, is equality, is equality. The I Make a Living podcast was brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solutions for small business owners and their teams. To learn more and get an exclusive offer, go to freshbooks.com slash podcast. If you want to attend an event, go to freshbooks.com slash events. A special thanks to Kwebe Koti and Laura Laban for their very candid conversation about the experiences they've had as women in the business world. You can find more information about them and the businesses that they run in our show notes. Join us next week as we talk about the dreaded day in April, tax day, and the different ways you can make it not so dreadful. This podcast was made possible because of audio engineering and music composition by James Morris. Co-production and direction by Paco Arizmendi. And I'm Darby Masters. Thanks for listening to the I Make a Living podcast.